0: Well, it's really good to see all of you here this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you've been a part of this series. And if you happen to be worshiping with us online this morning, we're grateful to have you join us as well. We're in this series, Step Goals, Walking with Jesus Daily. And this morning, we're going to talk about taking the high ground, all right? About two years ago... Uh, Elsie and I took a trip uh, and we visited Gettysburg, Pennsylvania in the process. We'd been there many, many years before, but a lot had changed there at the uh, battlefield. And so we went back to see it. And and we did something unique this time. Uh, We uh, had a park ranger tour guide actually drive our car on a three-hour tour throughout the battlefield. Now, I, th- to some of you, that sounds very tedious and, and very boring. It was anything but. Now, I really do like history. Elsie uh, enjoys history, probably not as much as I do, but she found it as fascinating as I did. We saw the whole sad affair through the words of this more than capable uh, tour guide. One of, one of the most memorable spots to me is a place called Little Round Top. Uh, it was at the far left flank of the Union line. And it was the 20th Maine under the leadership of Colonel Joshua Chamberlain that, that actually held the line on the top of Little Round Top, the high ground. The Confederates several times tried to sweep up the hill and take the high ground to gain the advantage. But every time, the 20th Maine and the others that were there repulsed them and kept them uh, down the hill. Finally, the 20th Maine ran out of ammunition. They had nothing left, and the Confederates mounted one last charge. And in order to meet the charge, they came running all over the top of the hill with such ferocity and such shouts that the Confederates laid down their arms and surrendered. They had no idea that there was no ammunition in their guns. It was a turning point in the battle on day two. Because, you see, if the Confederates had taken the high ground, It would have changed the battle, might have changed the outcome of Gettysburg. Had the Union lost the battle at Gettysburg, it might have changed the war. And history would be different today. The high ground matters. Now, when we think of high ground, we usually think of it in terms of military strategy. But that's not what I want to explore this morning. There is, however, a spiritual aspect to the high ground that we often overlook. It, too, will change our lives and change our history if we explore what it has to do with God. And when you consider walking daily with Jesus, we need to understand the high ground where God is. And it always seems that God was associated with the high ground. Psalm 121, the psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Isaiah 6-1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then God says through his prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. There's there's something about high, lifted up, exalted, the high ground. Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are two names in the Old Testament for the very same mountain, the mountain of God. Both Moses and Elijah encountered God on that mountaintop. The Ten Commandments and the law of the Old Testament was given on that mountaintop. God spoke from the cloud that covered the the top of that mountain to the people of Israel who were gathered at the base of that mountain. All told, there are some 63 chapters of the Old Testament that are devoted to events that took place at Mount Sinai. That amounts to 14% of the 463 historical narrative chapters from Genesis through Esther. 14% of the Old Testament narrative takes place at the mountain of God after Elijah's visit, visit, visit Mount Sinai dropped out of biblical history and its location seemed to fade from the remembrance of God's people. But when we turn the pages over to the New Testament, a new mountain seems to come into view. It is Mount Zion. It refers to the city of Jerusalem and most specifically to the place where the temple was built. And in prophecy, Mount Zion refers to that place where we long to go. That we anticipate someday will be a place that we call home. Heaven. Mount Zion is our goal. And you say, why this image of the high ground? Why this image of mountains in association with God? It's because there's something so incredibly majestic and awe inspiring about mountains. Ranges like the Grand Tetons leave one breathless with its beauty. For me, as a non mountain climber, reaching the summit seems well impossible. And all of those images point to us some facet of the greatness of God, that God is higher than we are, that he is unapproachable in all of his glory, that he is majestic, that he is awe-inspiring, that he is beyond description. God holds the high ground. And it's important for us this morning to get a glimpse of God so that in our lives he'll be praised and exalted. Now, I think probably our best place to start about the importance of doing that is, is Jesus himself. If we're going to walk with him daily, if we're really going to live out our step goals, then I think we need to see what Jesus thought about all this. We know what an irresistible and incredible life Jesus lived, but what we often forget is that Jesus never took credit for living that irresistible, incredible life. He always pointed to God. In his own words, John chapter 5, 19, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. In John chapter 17, verses 1 and 4. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is the whole reason why I came. To bring glory and honor to you, Father, by filling, fulfilling, and living out your plan. Now, those are just two of the verses that talk about the driving force behind the life and ministry of Jesus. And, and then he gives us this picture in John three twenty one. talking about us. He says, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly. That what he has done has been done through God. You understand what Jesus is saying? When you're walking with me, when you're walking in the light, when you're walking in the truth, it needs to be plainly seen that you're a reflection of God. This is not your own credit. This is not to your own glory. This is for the glory and the majesty of God. And you say, well, why should, why should I glorify God? Why should I praise God? Oh, folks, he holds the high ground morally and spiritually. But this is our problem. Unless our image and understanding of God continues to grow throughout our lives, he becomes considerably less and less with the passing of time. We lock him in at a certain vision when we are younger. And unless that changes, that's where we leave God in the recesses of our mind. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Uh, have you ever had a childhood friend move away uh, from, from your home area and you didn't see that that? boy or girl for another 20 years, so they're six or seven when they leave, they're 26 or 27 the first time you see them, but the last image you have of them in your mind is that picture of who they were when they left, and you see them for the first time, and you're kind of, wow, have you changed? Well, you've changed too, but you've grown with that. But you remember them as locked in at this particular image. It's the same thing. You graduate from high school. You got these images of all your classmates. You don't go back for a class reunion for 20 years, and you step into that class reunion, and your first question is, what are all these old people doing at my class reunion? It's that image. You understand? We lock somebody in when we last see them, and and that becomes what we hold on to. Now, that's problematic. We can do the same thing with God, but that's a problem if we do that with God. If the first image of the greatness of God from our childhood is what we cling to, we've got a problem. Let me see if I can explain it this way. When you're a child, when you're young, and you learn about God, God is larger than life. Your image of God is greater than anything you can possibly imagine. I love hearing my grandchildren talk about their their image of God. He's greater. He's just so much more powerful. He's an awesome character. So when you're small, this is the image of God that you have. Bigger, larger than life. Now that's great. But not if God remains this way throughout the rest of your life. For instance, by the time you become an adolescent, suddenly... God isn't so big anymore. Somehow your image hasn't changed, but you've changed, and you've gotten wiser, and you've grown stronger, and you begin to question things with God, because you see, God isn't nearly so big as he once was. And then we reach adulthood. And suddenly in adulthood, God becomes, well, at times very small to us. He's no longer larger than life. We've become larger than life. He's no longer the center. We become the center. And suddenly we find we just don't need God anymore because, well, that's for the immature. That's for the children because that's what he looked like when I was a child. Do you see the slippery slope, the problem that we get into? And our vision of God our understanding of God our perception of God needs to grow with the passing of time or we run into that problem uh our, our youngest grandchildren uh love the story of the three little pigs if we're going to read to them and they go to the drawer where the books are probably that's one that they're going to pick all right but I know the day is coming when the little ones among them are not that's not going to mean anything to them anymore Uh, You start growing up, you start going to school, and The Three Little Pigs is not much of a story. You start getting into chapter books, like The Boxcar Children or something like that. But it won't be long until after that. That doesn't mean anything to them anymore. You see, because as time goes by, we need to capture a new sense of wonder. What The Three Little Pigs is to us at the age of two, it doesn't mean that when we're seven or ten or fifteen or forty... You see, we we grow past that. And if we lock in God at the level of the three little Pig story, by the time we become adults, we've got a problem. We've lost our wonder. We've lost our perspective. We've lost this image of the greatness and the grandeur of God. Author and apologist Ravi Zacharias says, The older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder. And only God is big enough to fill it. And that's true. But you have to allow the perception and conception of God to fill that. It has to grow in your heart. We need to catch a glimpse of his grandeur and his glory. We need to keep opening our eyes and our minds to his awesome nature. We need, folks, we need an ever-expanding and growing understanding of the majesty of God. One that is adult size. One that will fill us to overflowing with wonder and amazement. So I'm going to ask you this morning, do you need a change in your perspective? (laughs) Dr. Paul Powell, in his week leading up to their 53rd anniversary, smiled at his wife and he said, Honey, did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that you would be married to me for 53 years? She smiled and replied, Paul, you were never a part of my wildest dreams. He got a new perspective from his wife. Do you need a new perspective? You need an image that is worth worshiping? Are you locked into what God was as a child in your childhood? Is your view of him at the level of the three little pigs? Which, you see, the problem with that is it makes him feel a little bit more like a fairy tale. But that's not our God, not in the least. So, so will you, with me, see if we can recapture for just a few moments a, a new picture, a new perspective, a grander image of the God that we serve? Discovery Magazine noted a new study by Swedish astrophysicist Eric Zacharson, which suggests that there are around 700 quintillion planets in the universe, but there's only one Earth. 700 quintillion. That's seven followed by 20 zeros. And with the aid of a computer model, Dr. Zacherson found that the earth appears to have been, quote, dealt a fairly lucky hand, end quote. You see, it goes on, one of the fundamental requirements for a planet to sustain life is to be orbiting in a habitable zone of a star, the region where the temperature is just right and where liquid water can exist. And there is just nothing in the computer model like Earth. Sometimes it's referred to as the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold, just right. I would suggest to you this morning that we were not dealt a lucky hand, but rather God had a plan from the very beginning and that this planet would hold a special purpose to honor and glorify Him. And do you know why you feel so tired at night when you plop into bed? I'm going to tell you. The earth is speeding through space at over 67,000 miles per hour. That's not just faster than uh, than a speeding bullet. That's 87 times faster than the speed of sound. So remember, on the days when you feel like you don't get anything else accomplished, you have at least traveled 1,599,793 miles. No wonder we're tired when we go to bed at night. And isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that at such phenomenal speeds, everything is in its proper place and in its proper order? Day after day after day. And what we see now through our strongest telescopes is only 5% of the universe, what what we can pick out. Uh, Scientists now believe that the rest of the universe is not only made up of what they call dark matter, but also now what they think is dark energy. And here's the problem. We don't understand dark matter. We don't understand dark energy. We have yet to discover what all is involved in that. We only have a handle on the 5% of the universe that is visible to us, and we don't really have much of a handle on that. It's incredible. Are you feeling a little bit smaller than you did when you came in? Is God seeming a lot bigger than the last time you thought of him? No wonder the psalmist wrote in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. You want another astonishing glance? Here it is. In recent decades, astrophysicists have concluded that if gravity were just one trillionth of one percent stronger... Our universe would have reversed course long ago. It would have collapsed catastrophically upon itself becoming the big crunch instead of the big bang. Likewise, if gravity were just one trillionth of 1% weaker, one trillionth of 1%, our universe would have flown apart so rapidly that planets, stars, galaxies would not have had a chance to coalesce. We'd all just be dust in the wind. Everything teeters on a razor's edge and yet it all works. Tonight if the sky is clear it'll be warm enough but go out look up into the sky the North Star is still the North Star the Big Dipper is still where it's been the universe while traveling at unimaginable speed is still in its proper course and order. The psalmist writes in Psalm 147, he determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Psalm 148, praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you shining stars. Praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the sky. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens in the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set into place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Let's go in a little slightly different direction. Take a dragonfly, just an ordinary common dragonfly. Do you realize that the eyes of a dragonfly have 30,000 lenses in each eye? 30,000 and that they tell us that it takes 80% of the dragonfly's brain just to interpret the signals that are coming from its eyes. Dragonfly's brain can't be very big, and 80%, that doesn't leave much. But the most fascinating thing about a dragonfly is its maneuverability. Scientists know that it, it has the capacity to hover and to create a, a maneuverability pattern that that causes the insects that are to be its prey the inability to see it. It appears to be stationary, a non-threat. And when the insect forgets that the dragonfly is there, that's when it strikes. Maneuverability that a fighter pilot can't even begin to imitate. As a matter of fact, two scientists in Britain recently took the pattern of maneuverability of a dragonfly, plugged it into a neural computer network, uh, and and, and uh, created a, a flight for a missile. They, they plugged that into then, uh, programmed that into a, a war game simulator. And do you know what they found? When the missile used the same kind of technology of the dragonfly, that the missile reached its target without detection much farther than what it normally does. What, what it takes a bank of computers for us to figure out and accomplish God built into 20% of a dragonfly's brain. Only God could do something so grand and glorious. During the harsh winters of northern Alaska, the wood frog freezes so that it looks like a frog-shaped piece of ice. And while it's frozen, literally frozen, the frog stops breathing, its heart stops beating, its blood stops flowing, and it cannot move. Before the severe winter arrives, the wood frog stores glucose in its liver. And when the frog's feet begin to freeze, the liver releases the glucose, which flows into the bloodstream. And glucose in the bloodstream of the frog is nothing but antifreeze. Just like we put in our cars, that glucose kind of liquidy fluid. It's what runs the sap in the trees during the wintertime. It's where we get our maple syrup from that glucose. It is antifreeze. And come spring, the fog thaws out. The heart starts beating. He hops to life again. Only the God of the universe could build into something so small, just three centimeters, something so complex that he would cease to function and then return to life. No wonder Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Can you see him better now? Is he larger than life now? Do you understand why he holds the high ground now? Why he is high and exalted and lifted up Do you see why he is worthy of our praise? Why he should be worshiped in all that we do? If Jesus lived his earthly life to glorify God, shouldn't that be our heart's desire and our chief quest in life? Here's what I want you to remember. Here's what I want you to remember. If you forget everything else, that's okay. Do not miss this. If God can hold all things together while it spins and travels at speeds far greater than the speed of sound, if God can give the dragonfly such incredible vision and maneuverability, if God can create the wood frog with the capability of returning to life after being frozen all winter long, then what in your life is God incapable of handling and defeating? If the God of the universe gave his son as a ransom for us, then he can handle anything in your life and mine. We just need to have the right picture. He's got the high ground. So you and me, we need to take the moral high ground. We need to stand firm on the spiritual high ground. Our God can do anything, and it is worthy of our highest praise. On second thought, folks, maybe this is more of a military strategy than we think. Maybe this is more battle-like than we think. You see, if we lose our perspective of God, our spiritual life will be compromised. And when we compromise the preeminence of God in our lives, the battle is lost, and the history of my soul forever changes. Do not, do not surrender the high ground. Comedian Irwin Corey's classic line was this, if we don't change direction soon, we'll end up where we're going. Where you end up will depend on the direction of your spiritual journey. Where are you going? And who are you going with? Are you walking daily with Jesus? Are you living on the high ground that brings you closer to God? There is no one like him ever anywhere. Author and preacher Tim Keller wrote that a Sunday school teacher changed his life back in the 1970s. And he tells this story of what the Sunday school teacher did that changed him. And that the the teacher held up a sheet of paper like this and said, let's just pretend that the distance between our earth and our sun is represented by the thickness of this paper. Not the length, not the width, but the thickness of this paper. If that's the distance between earth and our sun, then the distance between earth and our nearest star is a stack of paper 70 feet high. You, you want to you know how much that is? That would be like putting starting the stack here and doubling the height of our ceiling. Our, our ceiling here in the worship center is about... 35 to 38 feet so be twice this high and the width of our galaxy the teacher said is the equivalent of a stack of paper 310 miles long that's the distance between bloomington and quincy illinois and then the teacher added this our galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe. Yet Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. Now, is that the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? Hardly. That's the person you bow before, that you fall on your face before, that you honor and you glorify because he and he alone holds the high ground.